0: Open your Bibles up to Titus chapter 3. It's on page 1058 if you have one of our Bibles from the welcome table. Last week, uh, I gave a one-sentence summary of the letter, and uh, I just want to read that again just to keep that in our mind this morning. Paul is telling Titus how to teach the Cretan churches how to live in a way that reflects the gospel of Jesus Christ and his life-transforming life transforming Power. This is what Titus is all about. So far, we've seen the gospel in the greeting of the letter. We've seen the gospel in the appointment of elders in the churches. We've seen the gospel in the disciple making culture within the church. That was all of chapter two. Excuse me. And today we'll look at the gospel witness to outsiders through the good works of believers in those churches. And so, One of the questions we have to ask and and answer this morning is, how do good works and the Christian life fit together? And our passage today is going to help us with that. And so I want to read it, Titus chapter 3, 1 through 11. And then pray, and then we'll, we'll jump in. Titus 3, starting in verse 1. Remind them to submit to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work, to slander no one to avoid fighting, and to be kind, always showing gentleness to all people. For we too were once foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved by various passions and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful, detesting one another. But when the kindness of God, our Savior, and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us, not by works of righteousness that we had done, but according to His mercy, Through the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit, he poured out his Spirit on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we may become heirs with the hope of eternal life. This saying is trustworthy. I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed God might be careful to devote themselves to good works. These are good and profitable for everyone. But avoid foolish debates, genealogies, quarrels, and disputes about the law because they are unprofitable and worthless. Reject a divisive person after a first and second warning for you know that such a person has gone astray and is sinning. He is self-condemned. Lord, we thank you for the word of God that never changes. We thank you that it's not only applicable to the churches on the island of Crete, but it teaches us today how to live in the good news of Jesus Christ and do the good works that you've called us to do as a response to all that you've done on our behalf. So we pray you would teach us this morning. We pray that you would help us to set aside our uh, any preconceived ideas we have about the text, about the things that it talks about, and that we would hear, not just listen, not just audibly hear, but but listen with our hearts this morning to your word, and you would teach us and train us through your spirit so that we would look more like Jesus together as your body. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as the body of Christ, we learned back in Ephesians, God has given us good works to do, right? He's given us good works to do that serve as a gospel witness to unbelievers outside the church and to believers inside the church. We never graduate from the gospel, right? We've talked about this before. We need it every day. And so it's not only a witness to, to, to people outside the church, but it also continues to be a witness to those inside the church. And by inside and outside, I don't mean just physically inside or outside of this building. I'm talking about those who are united to Christ by grace through faith in those who are not. This is what Jesus talked about in the Gospel of Mark and, and, and those inside and outside. We all need to see and hear the Gospel continually because it reveals Christ's power and grace to continually transform lives. And so how do our good works help with that? Good works almost feels like this this dirty phrase sometimes for, for those uh, who are, are completely um, convinced of, of what the gospel teaches us, that it's not by our works that we're saved. So what, what are our works for? And that's what we're going to see in our passage today. And so um, our, our main idea for this morning, what the passage is going to teach us, is that if we want to be ready for every good work around us, then we need to rely on God's good work in us. If we want to be ready for every good work around us, we need to rely on God's good work in us. This is going to be a a highly practical uh, application uh, message this morning. Paul's going to talk about our, our relationship with unbelievers. He's going to talk about our relationship with God, and he's going to talk about our relationship with one another in the body of Christ. And in each case, we're going to think about good works in these terms. We're going to talk about what we need to do, what we need to avoid And what we need to remember. So as we go through each one of those, we're going to think in those terms in order to devote ourselves to the good works that God has prepared for us. So we're going to start with our relationship with unbelievers because that's where Paul starts. Look at verses 1 through 3. Remind them to submit to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work, to slander no one, to avoid fighting, and to be kind, always showing gentleness to all people. For we too were once foolish disobedient, deceived, enslaved by various passions and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful, detesting one another. Right off the bat, Paul starts to answer the question, what do we need to do? At the end of chapter 2, Paul tells Titus to proclaim these things, encourage and rebuke with all authority, let let no one disregard you, he says. Now his charge is for Titus to keep the gospel of God's Grace in front of the believers in the churches on Crete as he helps establish elders in each of those churches to do the same thing once Titus leaves. And then here at the beginning of chapter 3, Paul continues to talk to Titus and he tells him to remind the believers that along with submitting themselves to the godly leadership inside the church, they also need to submit to rulers and authorities outside the church and obey them whenever possible and be ready to do every good work. Be ready for every good work, he says. Now, to borrow uh, uh, Paul's phrase from chapter 2, verse 10, we adorn the teaching of God our Savior. In other words, the gospel and, the, and all of Scripture's message around that. We adorn the teaching of God our Savior when we submit ourselves to the governing authorities in our lives, even when those governing authorities are ungodly people. Good works are godly works when they're done in reliance upon Christ. Good works are produced from faith in Christ. So that means that obeying ungodly leaders can actually be godly work. Why? Because the gospel teaches us what true submission looks like. As the Son of God, Jesus submitted himself to the perfect will of God the Father and to the evil intentions of the Jewish and Roman leaders. Jesus was innocent, and yet he did not open his mouth. He did not defend himself against the accusations of the religious leaders. He didn't defend himself against the physical violence that was brought on him by the religious or the, the Roman rulers when they crucified him, and they flogged him, and they spit on him, and they put a crown of thorns on him. He obeyed every one of the Father's commands perfectly during his life on earth, and his death on the cross was an act of willful obedience, willful submission to the Father's plan of redemption, even though it used ungodly men to be carried out, to carry it out. And when we come to faith in Christ through belief in the gospel, when we hear the good news of of God's transforming grace through Jesus Christ, we are submitting ourselves to him in every way. We're agreeing with God's assessment of our hearts and confessing our unrighteousness in His righteousness. We're doing what God has told us to do, which is to cry out to Jesus to rescue us from our sin and to reconcile us to God through Jesus' obedience, through Jesus' death, through Jesus' resurrection. We're believing what God has told us to believe, that if we rely on Christ for salvation and forgiveness, that's exactly what He gives us. And we're obeying God's word, growing in our obedience to his commands as we submit to his Holy Spirit who now lives in us. In every part of our response to the gospel is an act of grace-empowered submission to the triune God, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, who is the supreme ruler and authority in our lives. And in his kindness and wisdom, God has given us earthly rulers and authorities as a blessing to maintain order and justice in the world. It's Romans 13. Now, of course, we know that there's no earthly leader that perfectly carries this out, right? In fact, there are many that are so openly corrupt that they actually contribute and add willfully to the chaos and the injustice in the world. But nonetheless, every one of those leaders is ultimately in submission to God as the, as the supreme king of the universe, And whether they want to or not, they're bending to his will, his sovereign plan to draw people to himself and to lead those people to submit to Christ above anyone else. Psalm 93 reminds us that God's throne has been established from the beginning. Why? Because he's from eternity. You see, we submit to the governing rulers and authorities in our lives because it bears witness to the transforming power of God's grace through the gospel of our Lord, Jesus Christ. Because of Christ, we who were once self-governing, we who once rebelled against God, we are now willfully and joyfully submitting ourselves to the righteous rule of Jesus, our good and gracious King. It's only when our earthly governing authorities require us to do something that God tells us not to do or when they tell us not to do something that God requires us to do, then we can abstain from submission to them. When earthly authorities lead us towards sin, our disobedience to them in those situations actually bears witness to the gospel because it reveals our greater desire to obey the God above all the one who rules over all things, who saved us and transformed us by his grace and continues to transform us. But it also reveals our desire for those earthly leaders to know and follow God too. Think about all these Old Testament guys, Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? They submitted until they couldn't do it because it would be sin. And even then, it was to display God as king. In their lives, so that others would know and believe. Whether we obey our leaders for the sake of the gospel or we disobey our leaders for the sake of the gospel, it's for the sake of the gospel. It should be for the sake of the gospel. But notice in either case how Paul says we ought to do that in verse 2. He says to be kind. Uh, 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 always showing gentleness to all people. The Greek word for kind here means not not insisting on every letter of the law, not not being legalistic, but to be gracious and and forbearing. It's a call to be self-controlled rather than self-consumed. This is a major theme in in the letter to Titus. Be self-controlled. Is that how unbelievers would describe you? Is that how believers would describe you? See, that, that statement immediately ma- makes me recognize my own ongoing need for God's grace because in my flesh, I, I, I excuse, I want to excuse, my, my harsh tone is necessary for the defense of the truth when in reality, it's necessary for the defense of my pride. But the gospel teaches us that it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance God will always be far more patient and gracious and forbearing with our opponents than you and I will be. And God will always be far more patient and gracious and forbearing when, with us than you and I will be. But now wait a minute, because didn't Paul tell Titus to, to rebuke with all authority at the end of chapter 2? What about chapter 1 when he said uh, that the elders need to refute those who contradict the sound teaching of the gospel? Or when he told Titus to rebuke the false teachers sharply so that they may be sound in the faith? Is he contradicting himself here? Is he walking back on what he said? No. Sharply and angrily are two very different things. James 1 tells us that human anger does not accomplish God's righteousness. We have to think real long and carefully before we justify our anger as righteous anger. Kindness doesn't necessarily compromise or dilute the truth. More often than not, it actually enhances it and it makes it sharper. Sharper. It brings it to the forefront because it reflects the nature of our God who saves us by revealing his truth to us in what? Love. It's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. Charles Spurgeon spoke about this to a group of young men that he was training for pastoral ministry. He says this to them in uh, lectures to my students. He says, in all probability, sensible com- Sensible conversation will sometimes drift into controversy. And here, many a good man runs upon a snag. The sensible minister will be particularly gentle in argument. He, above all men, should not make the mistake of fancying that there is force in temper and power in speaking angrily. Try to avoid debating with people. State your opinion and let them state theirs. If you see that a stick is crooked and you want people to see how crooked it is, lay a straight rod down beside it. That will be quite enough. But if you are drawn into controversy, use very hard arguments and very soft words. Frequently, you cannot convince a man by tugging at his reason, but you can persuade him by winning his affections. I think Spurgeon's words aren't just good wisdom for pastors. They're good wisdom for all believers. So we talked about what we need to do. Now what do we need to avoid? Verse 2 we need to avoid slander and fighting. So how does it reflect God's character and, and, and truth when we spread lies about others in order to damage their character, when we gossip about them, when we, when we tell these untruths to make them look even more wrong and us look more right? How does hostility toward those with whom we disagree lead them to the kindness of God and repentance? Shouldn't we instead be inclined toward peace because Christ is our peace? Shouldn't we speak to others in a way that helps them lower their guard enough to take an honest look at themselves and an honest look at Jesus, even while we do the same? Aren't God's word and God's spirit far more sufficient to expose someone's true character than we are? Instead of attacking their character with legalism and picking fights with them, Shouldn't we rather seek to reveal God's truth to them in kindness with gospel words and gospel works? One way to avoid slander and fighting is to ask questions more than we give statements. Questions slow us down. They require us to listen patiently. Here's the important part. Not so that we can look for an opportunity to trap someone in their words. That's what Pharisees do but so that the Holy Spirit can help us see the ways that ignorance and unbelief. Listen, that's what we all lived in before the gospel was revealed to us, before Christ opened our eyes, ignorance and unbelief. And so we can go into a conversation with someone who who is clearly rebelling against God and understand this is ignorance and unbelief. And we can ask for the Holy Spirit to help to see how those things have captured that person's heart. And we can speak to those things in love with the grace-filled truth of God's word. So we can help them connect the realities of the gospel with the realities of their lives, right? You can tell someone who is pro-abortion that they support the murder of babies. You can tell them that. Or you can ask them what it means to be human. Their answer can lead to more questions about how that shapes their view of themselves and how they even think God views them, or, or how they even think about God themselves. If God is our creator and he made us in his image, how does that help us understand the sanctity of human life and, and when life actually begins for us? How does that help us view unborn babies and our responsibility to them? If God is our redeemer, what hope does that give for someone who has had an abortion? something that you can't undo. When we're able to ask hard questions with gentleness, to use hard arguments and soft words, we're able to treat fellow human beings as fellow image bearers of God while we lead them to the devastating and the beautiful truth of the gospel. Devastating because it shows us all to be sinners desperately in need of grace. Beautiful because it shows that God has provided that grace for us sufficiently, permanently, gloriously in Jesus Christ. What do we need to remember? We need to remember that we too were once foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved by various passions and pleasure, living in malice and envy, hateful, detesting one another, In other words, we need to remember that we were once just like the people we now want to prove wrong, acting in ignorance and unbelief. You see that description of the Cretans back in chapter 1, verse 12? The Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. That's more than a description of a society of people in the first century on a Mediterranean island in in Paul's day. That's a description of the human condition. It's an accurate description of our heart when we don't have Christ's transforming grace. But as believers, we need to remember. We need to remember that our hearts have been changed, and not by us, but by Jesus. And we need to remember how they've been changed, and that leads us then to what Paul says about our relationship with God. Look at verse 4. But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us. Not by works of righteousness that we had done, but according to his mercy. Through the washing of regeneration and renewal by the, by, by the Holy Spirit. He poured out his spirit on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior. So that having been justified by his grace, we may become heirs with the hope of eternal life. This saying is trustworthy. I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed God might be careful to devote themselves to good works. These are good and profitable for everyone. We're going to start this time with what do we need to remember from these verses. What do we need to remember? We need to remember that it was God's kindness that led us to repentance. Jesus Christ is the kindness and love of God. He is the truth of God. He is the way to God. He is our life. Christ is the kindness of God and the love of God that appeared for mankind and he saved us. God's kindness and love didn't make it possible for us to save ourselves. That's why it's not by works of righteousness that we had done, but according to his what? Mercy. He saved us by himself. And I mean that in more ways than one. More ways than one. It's God's work alone that brings salvation to us. And God himself who did it for us. It's not any work of our own. Listen to this. let's, Let's put this into perspective here. It's in kindness and love, God shows us our need to be rescued from ourselves. In his mercy, he removed the punishment from us that we deserve for our sins against him and placed it on his son at the cross. It's Jesus who willingly suffered and died in our place to set us free. It's Jesus who lived a perfect life of obedience to God before he died so that he could give us his righteousness when, when he took our unrighteousness on the cross. It's his Holy Spirit who brought our dead hearts to life through spiritual regeneration and and washed us clean from the filth of our sin and made us new through faith in Christ. It's, It's God who poured out His Spirit generously and indiscriminately on men and women, young and old, slave and free, so that all who rely on Christ and not on themselves are justified by His grace and become His children and recipients of all All of his promised blessings, Ephesians 1. And Paul repeats it for the third time in this letter. Heirs to the hope of eternal life. The certain guarantee of what Christ has purchased for us on our behalf. And now as new creations in Christ, we stand before a holy God as his holy people Because our unholiness was placed on his son and Christ's righteousness was placed on us. Who did that? Not us. And we can now live in holiness while we wait with certainty for the eternal life to come. This is what we need to remember. The wonderfully, beautifully, gloriously good news of the gospel. We need to remember that our salvation is God's work and not ours. We need to remember that transforming grace comes from God to us through Christ and frees us to work not for our salvation, but from it in order to reveal God's grace to others. When we remember that, then we can be ready to do what we need to do. So what do we need to do? Well, We need to believe this gospel, right? And we need to keep believing it, and we need to remind each other of it daily so that we don't forget it. We need to share this gospel with others who think that they can save themselves or who think that they don't need to be saved at all or who think that they have more sin than God can forgive. The same gospel treats all of those mindsets, We need to insist on these gospel things, as Paul tells Titus to do, so that we who have believed God might be careful to devote ourselves to good works because works produced from faith in Christ are godly works, and they're profitable for everyone. So what is a good work then? Well, we talked about it last week. It's a godly work. What is that? Anything that's done in dependence on Christ and reveals God's transforming grace to others, that's a good work. That opens the field wide up for us to think about how God wants us to be ready and what good works he has prepared for us as individuals and as a body. So what do we need to avoid? We need to avoid correcting lawlessness with legalism and inadvertently communicating a false gospel of human effort. We need to guard against the temptation to address sinful behavior without first addressing the sinful heart. That's why we can't just listen in order to prepare for our rebuttal. We have to listen to hear what is coming out from the inside of this person. When we emphasize the behavior over the heart, it's easy to burden people with rules to follow rather than showing them the grace of God that relieves the burden of their sin restores them then to joyful obedience. On the other hand, we have to avoid, we also need to avoid compensating for legalism with lawlessness and inadvertently communicating a false gospel of cheap grace. We need to guard against the temptation to downplay sinful behavior while emphasizing the sincerity of a person's heart toward God. We need to, when we downplay sinful behavior, it's easy to give people the impression that they have God's permission to continue in it. That he accepts them the way that they are and that they don't need to change. Listen, Jesus does welcome all to the cross in whatever state they're in. He welcomes all who come to him in faith, depending not on themselves but upon him, no matter what their life looks like when they come. But he never leaves us the way that we are. His grace is far too good and far too powerful not to change us from the inside out. You see, the true gospel doesn't tell us to clean ourselves up before we come to Christ, and it also doesn't leave us dirty after we believe. It motivates us toward obedience, true, free obedience to the Lord. We need to help others see that their outward behavior is a reflection of their inward heart, just like Jesus says in the Gospels. And we need to point them to the grace of God in Christ to make the inside good, so then it makes the outside good. Order matters. That leads us to what Paul says about our relationship with one another verses 9 through 11. But avoid foolish debates, genealogies, quarrels, and disputes about the law because they are unprofitable and worthless. Reject a divisive person after a first and second warning for you know that such a person has gone astray and is sinning. He is self-condemned. We're going to start with what do we need to avoid for this one because that's what Paul starts with. We need to avoid corrupting the gospel with worthless and unprofitable things. The legalism of the false teachers on the island of Crete provoked these foolish debates, these quarrels, these disputes about things that were a distraction from the gospel. They would use genealogies to try to include and exclude different people from the community or from the church and prove their right then to to certain positions of authority in those places. In other words, what they argued is that if you have the right last name, You have all the benefits. You belonged and you had special privileges. The gospel changes all of that. They also argued about the letter of the law, but they failed to understand the spirit of the law. They were more concerned with convincing others of their need to be circumcised in the flesh rather than their need for a circumcision of the heart. They bound people's consciences to ceremonial requirements and human commands rather than binding their consciences with the gospel. Paul says engaging with these people in these things is a waste of time. We might post a lot less on Facebook if we believe that. Good works are profitable for everyone, but these works, Paul says, they're unprofitable, they're worthless for everyone. This is one of the reasons that Paul places so much importance on establishing a plurality of elders in the church in chapter 1. Appointing a group of godly men to lead God's church in the truth of God's gospel. Is necessary to safeguard the church against things that corrupt. Elders refute those who contradict the sound teaching of the gospel. They rebuke false teachers so that they may be sound in the faith. Elders keep the church focused on the main thing Jesus Christ, the head. and his transforming grace through the gospel. Elders shepherd the church in the gospel through teaching and example in order to help the church avoid division and keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. So what do we need to do? We need to guard against the slander of Christ and his word by maintaining the purity of the gospel inside the church. That means we need to understand and practice church discipline. And there it is. That uncomfortable phrase. I don't know what your experience is in it. I'm sure it brings up all kinds of responses based on how you've seen it play out in churches. But remember, our experiences make a really, really poor foundation for our theology and our practice. We need the firm foundation that we sang about this morning of God's Word to shape our understanding of its truths, what God tells us in his word, and then how our experiences relate to those truths that don't change. Scripture never requires us to dismiss or to diminish the reality of our experiences. It doesn't say that. Like, eh, don't worry about that. You don't have to feel. Scripture doesn't tell us that. You have real experiences and you have real emotions attached to them. But emotions lead us all over the place. God's truth leads us one direction. Scripture does require us to take those realities and examine them through the lens of the gospel. Experience tends to lead us to believe that church discipline is harsh and unnecessary or an abuse of power from the leaders in the church. And yes, experience has shown that in several ways. But scripture leads us to see it as necessary and difficult acts of love meant to lead a wayward brother or sister back to Christ. And I say acts, plural, because church discipline is far more than the removal of a member from the fellowship of the church. It's an intentional process over time that involves coming alongside someone who's continuing in unrepentant sin and exposing them to the gospel in kindness over and over and pleading with them to turn from their sin and to be restored to fellowship with Christ and his church. It's actually not pushing someone out. It's trying to draw them in. It's not shunning. It's shepherding. Galatians 6, 1 and 2. Brothers and sisters, if someone is overtaken in any wrongdoing... You who are spiritual, not just elders, but you who believe. Restore such a person with a gentle spirit, watching out for yourselves so that you also won't be tempted. Carry one another's burdens. You know, that's not just like bring them a meal when they've been in the hospital. That's looking someone who has done something at someone who has done something devastating in their life. And saying, I love you. And I want you to know Christ's forgiveness and grace and mercy. And I will go right beside you. Lord willing to help you see that. In this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. Look at what Paul says back here in verse 10. It says, reject a divisive person after a first and second warning. Paul's giving a really concise summary here, but these aren't necessarily meant to be rapid-fire steps. I think we end up doing that sometimes. But, but what's, what's required? What's the theme of the letter? Patience and self-control and a gentle spirit. These are all necessary to follow these instructions. Don't forget verse 2. Slander no one, avoid fighting, and be kind, always showing gentleness to all people. That includes the brother or sister in Christ that has severely wronged you. Paul's instructions in verse 10 and 11 are following a pattern laid out by Christ himself in Matthew 18. Jesus says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he won't listen, take one or two others with you so that by the testimony of two or three witnesses, every fact may be established. So that people know you're not making this up. And if he doesn't pay attention to them, tell the church. If he doesn't pay attention even to the church, Let him be like a Gentile and a tax collector to you. In other words, you need to see them as an unbeliever because that's what they're proclaiming by their actions. But then what? How do we treat unbelievers? I think one of the reasons that we wince at church discipline is because we tend to think about it only in terms of public correction and dismissal from the church. And we fail to think about all the private instruction and invitation that, that leads up to that last resort. I want you to think about the word discipline for a minute. Spell it in your mind, okay? Take the E at the end and turn it into a G. What do you have? Discipling. Discipling. It's the same word. same root, the same understanding that that comes through that. When we have intentional disciple-making relationships with one another where we share our lives and the gospel in an ongoing way with each other, that's the instructive form of the church discipline. Most often what we see is the corrective form of it. Those disciple-making relationships are God's gift of grace when they're built around knowing one another and growing together in our understanding of God's word and our obedience to it. 2 Timothy 2.22, flee the evil desires of your youth and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. You have to do it together. Hebrews 12 says that God disciplines those he loves. Why? So we can know we're his children. And so that we can share in his holiness, so that we don't grow weary and give up. And he's given us brothers and sisters in Christ to help us, as he says in Hebrews 12, to fix our eyes on Jesus Christ, the source and the perfecter of our faith, and to help us run with endurance the race that lies before us as we lay aside every hindrance to the sin and the sin that so easily ensnares us. We don't do that by ourselves. Does that picture of discipline make you wince? It shouldn't. And neither should church discipline because it's meant to be a biblical reflection of our Heavenly Father's loving discipline toward His children. It's a display of God's grace done in dependence upon Christ. It's a good work that God has given us to do. And once again, we see the importance of church membership. Not because it's, it, it's like this, this cult thing that, that we're trying to rope everybody in. But how can you discipline someone? How can you put someone out of fellowship in the church if you don't know who's in fellowship with the church in the first place? If we don't commit to one another in visible membership, which, which necessarily means it has to be formal in some way for us. You know me, I'm I'm function without fashion, right? Structure without formality. Well, this is something we need. It's structure. Because we need to know who we're committed to and who's committed to us. You can't put someone out of fellowship in the church if you don't know who's in fellowship in the church. Our Constitution begins the section on church discipline by saying this. If membership is the church's public affirmation of a person's profession of faith, then church discipline is the church's public removal of that affirmation. Notice the wording. It doesn't say the church's public removal of that person, although that's entitled or that that happens. It's the church's public removal of that affirmation. In church discipline, the church is looking at a person's outward life and seeing that that does not uh, line up with their public profession of who Christ is. And it's the church saying that it can no longer affirm a person's testimony due to his or her persistent refusal to live in a manner consistent with a profession of faith in Jesus Christ. This, This is the wording in our Constitution. You see, in a societal culture of individuality that thrives on autonomy and self-governance, we need a church culture, a biblical culture that thrives on one-anothering and self-denial. A culture where we covenant together as a community of believers, determined, determined to help one another and to be helped by one another to grow in the grace of God and run the race of faith side by side with endurance fueled by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that leads us to the last thing. What do we need to remember? We need to remember that church discipline, when it's done biblically, is in fact a display of the church's love for God and for the wayward sinner, for the wayward brother or sister. And it communicates our longing for redemption and reconciliation to take place. If we're itching to get that person out of here, we're doing it wrong. We need to remember that it's also a display of our Redeemer's love for the church as his bride. And it shows us not only his longing for, but also his ability to purify his bride and prepare her to dwell with him for all eternity. That's what he's doing. We need to remember that practicing biblical church discipline is vital to the health of the church. You can't not do this and be fully healthy as a church. Because it promotes repentance, reconciliation, and the spiritual growth of the person being disciplined. It serves as an example and instruction in righteousness to other believers. It guards the purity of the church as a whole. It keeps our corporate gospel witness to non-Christians above reproach. All of these things that Paul's been talking about in his letter. And it glorifies God by revealing and reflecting his holy character. This is good and profitable for everyone. This is a good work. We need to remember that when a person rejects the gospel support of other believers to the point of being dismissed from fellowship, as Paul says in verse 11, that person is self-condemned. They might lash out at the church, they might lash out at the leaders, or even at Christ himself. They might pass blame on to all kinds of people and things, but such a person has gone astray and is sinning. They've chosen to deny Christ's redemptive love through his church and they've declared their desire to live in rebellion against God and obedience to the devil. That's the reality. By the time discipline gets to dismissal from the fellowship, all the church is doing is simply acknowledging what that person has already made abundantly clear. And finally, we need to remember that if and when we have to dismiss a member from the fellowship of the church, we can do so knowing, confident that that person is not beyond the hope of restoration because that is the goal. Because God is the good shepherd who never loses even one of his sheep no matter how far they stray. John 6, 37, Jesus says, everyone the Father gives me will come to me and the one who comes to me I will never cast out for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose none of those he has given me, but should raise them up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I will raise them up on the last day. This is hope. That even when we can't see it in someone, when it looks like they've ran completely away from Christ. That's why Luke gives us the story of the prodigal son and the reminder that Christ is our shepherd who comes after us. In 1 Corinthians 5, Paul tells, us the church, tells the church to put an unrepentant man out of the fellowship of the church. And in verse 5 he says, hand that one over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. I didn't realize Christ was all I needed until Christ was all I had. That's the spirit of that statement there. We need to keep eternity in view and hold fast to God's promise for final restoration of all his people that he will not lose a single one of them, even when it looks like there's no hope for it in the present. So even as we do the good work of dismissing someone from the fellowship of the church, we continue to do the good work of sharing the gospel with that person. That's how we treat them as a Gentile or a tax collector. And we continue to trust in the Holy Spirit's good work of revealing and applying God's transforming grace through Jesus Christ and his word. What are good works? They're godly works. They're gospel works. They're not always easy works. They're not always fun works. But they always point believers and unbelievers alike to God's abundant grace. So as believers, we're called to be ready Then and to devote ourselves to doing the outward work that makes the gospel known to others while God does the inward work of impressing that gospel onto people's hearts and transforming them by his grace into people who now love and obey his son and devote themselves to good works for his glory. If we want to be ready for every good work around us, we need to rely on God's good work in us. Praise God. For the finished work of his son, for the ongoing work of his spirit and his word, and listen, for the side-by-side work of his church. Each one of these things, God's gift of grace to us, to enable us to do what he's called us to do. Amen? Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you how it does instruct us and teach us toward greater obedience to you, not to earn anything, because it instructs us also that we've been given everything in Christ. Help us, God, to clearly understand the good works that you've called us to do and to readily do them for your glory so that others might see and hear the gospel in us And believe it and be saved. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.